Let me pray for us again. Lord, we're so glad to be called your children. We're so glad that you have poured out your love upon us in such a generous way. We're so glad that you've seen fit to give us grace and mercy through the blood of Christ. And we're so glad that you have spoken to us through your word, that we might be wise and we might know you and love you. And so, God, I pray that as we look at this passage of Scripture this morning, that our eyes would be opened more fully to what the kingdom of God looks like as it's practiced by your children. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just know that as a mental exercise or an intellectual ascent, but we would live it out and practice it and do it in a way that gives you glory and honor like Romans 12 teaches us. So Lord, bless us. Bless us with a greater portion of your Holy Spirit and a deeper understanding of your word and a more faithful love of Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. Uh, Open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 7. We've been making our way through the Sermon on the Mount as we We're doing the at-home live stream, and we're going to finish through the Sermon on the Mount. So we're in Matthew chapter 7. As you're turning there, I want to ask you if you've ever heard of the term rejection therapy. Anybody ever heard of this term, rejection therapy? A guy by the name of Jaya Jang, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, has written a best-selling book on this subject, and he has a YouTube channel with tens of millions of views. And Jang became famous after he decided that he couldn't take uh, being so devastated by rejection any longer. And he was going to do sort of a mental experiment in his own life where he would go for 100 straight, straight days asking people for absurd things, fully expecting that they would say no, And he would just swallow enough rejection over a hundred days that he would get to the point after doing this that he just wouldn't care anymore. And if you're anything like me, then you have some anxiety about rejection and you recognize that it can be painful. And uh, what's interesting about this experiment, though, is that Jang actually uh, encountered a very strange result as he went through this experiment he began to see the incredible power of the request, the persuasive nature of the ask. In one video he has on his YouTube channel, uh, Jang decides that he's going to go into a Krispy Kreme donut and he's going to ask the manager to make him a donut shaped like the Olympic rings with all the right colors on it. And he thought, for sure, this request is so silly, I'm going to be just like laughed out of this place and told, no, we're too busy. And the manager begins to reflect on that, and after a couple seconds goes, you know, I, th- I think I could do that. And she says, how soon do you need it? And he says, well, like in the next 15 minutes. And she's like, well, okay, all right, I'll give it a try. And he's like, I can't believe she's agreeing to this. By the end of the video, the woman comes out, she's made Jang his Olympic ring donuts with all the appropriate colors. In fact, the colors they discussed at the beginning were wrong, and she looked them up on her phone and corrected them. 
And instead of rejecting him, she delivers to him this rather absurd request that he had made. And, and that's not all. By the end of the video, she ends up telling him she's very sorry that it doesn't look as good as it could. And then when he says, no, it's wonderful, I love it, she says, oh, you're way too kind to offer me such compliments. And then he says, how much do I owe you for the donuts? And she goes, oh, they're free. And she, she ends up giving him the donuts and saying that, what she did to serve him was not even good enough. And this is the power of the request, the persuasion of the ask. Jang found it out uh, that although often you do get rejected, there's a surprising reality in life that a lot of times all you need to do to get a positive response is simply ask somebody nicely. It's amazing what a simple ask can do. And the reason I tell that story is because there's an element of this reality in the text that we're going to look at this morning. The power of the request and the persuasion of the ask. So read with me Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks, asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now look, if you've spent any time in church and you've heard this passage preached before, you have probably been taught in the past that these verses are about our relationship to God. It's about us asking God. And of course, there is an element of that in there because Jesus says God loves to give good things to those who ask him. But I want to submit to you this morning that these verses are actually not primarily about us asking God for things. They are primarily about how God works through his people with the power of the ask to bring the reality of the kingdom of God to bear upon our relationships with one another. And I want to try and persuade you that that's the case this morning, okay? Remember, Jesus is giving these people a sermon, and the whole point of a sermon, or the whole point of this sermon that Jesus is giving is to paint a picture for people what life in the kingdom of God looks like. He's teaching about the present reality, the present reality. Remember that verse from Titus chapter 2, in this present age, about the reality of a grace-filled spirit-driven, resurrection life. Jesus is trying to tell his hearers what life in the kingdom of God looks like here and now as we live inside of his grace. And so he's talked about things like anger and retaliation and these overwhelming feelings of passions, anxiety. He's addressed these things and he says, guys, in the kingdom of God, these things don't need to reign. And now because this is a sermon and because I'm a preacher, uh, I can tell you when someone is giving a sermon, 
if, if they're doing a decent job, then they try to make everything kind of connect and flow, okay? I mean, I think a bad sermon is one that looks like a shotgun hole where you've got like 18 different disconnected points that you're trying to get people to remember. A good sermon is one that has one or maybe two kind of main points that flow throughout it so that people are persuaded to see what is uh, being claimed. And since Jesus is a good preacher, he's not only a good preacher, he's the best preacher, I want to, again, submit to you that Jesus is not giving in his Sermon on the Mount like 18 points about different things. He's got one big idea in mind here. And the big idea is, what does life in the kingdom of God look like? And so then it's for this reason that that Jesus has a flow in mind that I want to submit to you that Jesus has not actually changed his subject matter in verses 7 through 12 from his subject matter in verses 1 through 6. Instead, Jesus is continuing to talk about what our relationships with one another look like in the kingdom of God. And I recognize this is probably a different take on this than you've heard before. And so you should go home and discern for yourselves as you look more closely at the text, whether you think I'm right or not. But here's why I want to make this claim, okay? It's a word that often comes up in Bible study. In fact, uh, Andy mentioned it a few weeks ago in our uh, study around my kitchen table. It's the word context, If we go back to verses 1 through 7 of chapter 7, which is what we talked about a little bit last week, we remember Jesus spent a lot of time teaching about what interpersonal relationships with one another look like in the kingdom of God. So as kind of a summary, in the kingdom of God, we must make judgments. We have to discern between what is good and what is evil. We have to discern between what is true and what is false. But in the kingdom of God, we are not supposed to be in our relationships judgmental. We are not to proudly condemn one another while we ourselves are mired in sin. We're not to hold ourselves to other standards that we don't live by in our own lives. In the kingdom of God, it's not our responsibility to go around demanding that other people be holy. Rather, we are supposed to first and foremost set our own hearts and our own minds upon the pursuit of holiness personally. Notice the subtle connection between verse 5. It says, hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see properly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then look at verse 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. I think we're talking about Christian relationships with one another in both of these verses, aren't we? And really nothing has actually changed in the verses between them. In the kingdom of God, Relationships with one another are not marked by us being surgical sin removers of other people around us. Rather, first we're to set our hearts upon God who will surgically remove sin from us. Isn't that how we would also want to be treated? To know that the person who's concerned about sin in my life has been 
uh, similarly concerned about it in their own life. And so verses 7 through 11 flow right out of the subject matter of the prior verses and then flow right into verse 12. We are still on the subject of what relationships look like in the kingdom of God. And what Jesus wants us to understand is this. He wants us to understand the power of the request upon the kingdom heart. Jesus wants to impress upon us the power of the request upon the kingdom heart and how that power far exceeds the strength of demanding and forcing through judgmentalism. Friends, all too often Christians demand holiness from one another. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times people have said, like, I kind of like Jesus, but I left the church because the expectations of people around me were simply too demanding. And when Christians demand holiness from one another, I think it tends to lead to judgmentalism, to pride, to self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And I think Jesus actually wants nothing to do with that. Remember, Again, context, Jesus is, throughout this sermon, speaking against the externalism of the Pharisees, who are like whitewashed tombs, who have all of the outward trappings of godliness while their souls are rotting away in sin. And their burdensome demands upon the Jewish people has made the Pharisees proud, judgmental, arrogant, hypocritical. And so Jesus wants to undo that kind of community ethic as he teaches his listeners about how change takes place among the people of God when our hearts truly belong to God. When our hearts belong to God, we don't have to demand change from other people and thereby fall into pride and self-righteousness. Instead, guys, We can simply ask one another to lean into the same power that enables holiness in each one of us. And that simple request is enough to affect the change of godliness. Andy already mentioned the passage, but I have to go there. One of my favorite passages for what the kingdom of God looks like in practice is Romans 12. And it begins with this request before the verses Andy read. Paul writes, I appeal to you. I appeal to you. That's a word of request. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The chapter begins with that appeal, and then it moves into the verses Andy read. I'll just read a couple of them. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Now, in English, we give to each one of those statements, a a, a uh, command-like verbiage. And they do have the force of a command. I don't deny that. 
But in Greek, they are not imperatives. They are not grammatically commands. Instead, they are rooted, I think, in this request that Paul makes at the beginning of this new section where he begins to spell out what the theology he's developed earlier now means in practice. And so Paul opens this chapter with an appeal for us to be a living sacrifice, to live lives that please God. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Don't you personally know how much more effective a request is than a demand to actually change a heart? I mean, maybe I'm unique in this, but think about it. When you're stuck at a red light and you see the homeless guy there with his sign, he's not making any demands upon you. He's simply asking you. And to avoid that pressure, you know, you turn the radio up a little bit, you notice something really interesting on the bumper of the car in front of you, that little paint chip. Our hearts are moved by a desperate request, which is why we look away, to not feel the burden of that request. But if that man came to your window and pounded on it and said, hey, unlock this door, give me $5 right now, I demand that you give me money, you would be like, forget you, dude. You might even run him over as the light turns green. Your heart would grow cold and hard. And you would feel every bit justified to simply ignore him. Don't you see that our hearts harden in rebellion when people demand things from us, but they soften in kindness when people request things from us? Even your dog knows this, which is why it gives you those puppy dog eyes from under the table when you're eating that juicy hamburger. When Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you, seek, and you will find, knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. He's telling us about how the Holy Spirit of God works upon the hearts of God's children in fellowship with one another. Jesus is teaching us that the way that we affect change in the hearts of our fellow Christians is to request them to obey what God has commanded, not demand them to do such. The community of Christian love is a community of mutual asking and seeking and knocking as we help our fellow brother and sister grow towards Christ-likeness. So here's what this means. First, it means that we pray for one another, right? That's right there in the text. Look at verses 9 through 11. This is not about you and your requests for what you want from God. This is about your love for other people as you seek to draw out of them greater godliness through the power of the request. God loves to answer the requests of his children in ways that are good for them. And the reason Jesus brings the Father into this context now here is to remind us who actually has the power to change a human heart. When we make demands of one another in many ways, 
we are appealing only to the weakened, sinful nature, the human will inside of another person. We want, to cha- we want to see change in other people, but through our demands, we leave out the most important resource that any of us have available to us, which is the power of God the Father to transform human hearts. The power of God our Father who loves to see his children flourish in righteousness. And so instead of demands, we should ask. And that begins with praying. That we would ask God on behalf of one another that he would do a work to change people. That we would ask God who has the power to work on the hearts of his children to transform them from the inside out. And so we pray and we ask God to change people. In humility, we might also ask God to change us. But we ask God to bring his kingdom to bear on the hearts and lives of his people. We pray and ask God to do what only God can do, to change hearts and make us holy. But second, then, I think this means we ask one another. I think that's the whole force of verses 7 and 8. If we want to see our brother and sister change and be more holy, all we have to do is ask them. Now, that may seem radical to you, and so let me explain how that's going to play out. We ask them to live the kingdom life. We seek them out when they are not. We knock and we plead with them to open the door of their hearts and not harden their hearts towards us and towards God's word. We set aside our demands for one another, and we simply ask. This is what love looks like in the church. We appeal to one another to live a life of righteousness. And we expect that because God loves to give good gifts to his children, that he will produce in the body of Christ lives of righteousness. He will respond to our appeal. Let's talk about just two specific examples of what this might look like in application, okay? I'm not very good at bearing my soul. I kind of stink at it. I'm, I'm introverted. I'm self-conscious. I have lots of issues in those areas, uh, particularly in the context of my marriage. For some reason, I have a difficult time letting my wife into what's taking place in my soul. And thank God my wife is wise enough to know that making demands upon me simply don't work. I do not respond well to demands. In fact, I've found that the more that I'm demanded to do something, the more I do the opposite. Because God still has me in this rebellion therapy, changing my heart. And Again, I guess maybe I'm alone in this, but I hope that maybe some people can relate. There's something about duty and law and that obligation being heaped upon you that just causes rebellion to well up in my soul. I think that's actually some of what the Apostle Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 5, if you want to go read that, and what the author of Hebrews is getting at in Hebrews chapter 3. 
Tell me I must do something, and suddenly all I can think about is doing the opposite of what you have demanded from me. And I actually, I know this isn't just my problem, because the Bible says this is what sin does. It produces rebellion, hard-heartedness, stubbornness. But actually, it's even worse than that. Think about this for a second, because if you tell me it's my duty to do something, and I must follow this law that you have given me, if for some reason I manage to not succumb to rebellion, and I follow through on my duty, you know what often happens? You get the behavior while my heart hates it. This is the Pharisees. They do the law of God. They do their duty. They follow the demands that have been placed upon them to follow the Sabbath and make sacrifices. All the while, their hearts are cold and dead and far from God. Duty and demands may produce a certain behavior, but it will not change the human heart. Back to my marriage, Leanne, fortunately, is wise enough to know that she can make demands upon me, but it only pushes me away. That's what demands do. They alienate and they separate. And when Leanne has tried to make demands, she suddenly found herself up against the the rock-hard, impenetrable fortress of my soul. And she may continue to demand, and she may even eventually get the behavior that she wants out of me, but she won't get me. She gets the response, fine, have it your way. And I do it, and I hate as I do it. The action follows while my heart remains mired in sin. But my wife is truly wise, and she's come to understand just the power of the request, the persuasion of the ask. When she takes that gentle, kind, gracious, patient, fruit of the spirit approach to my soul not always but usually it has the power eventually to penetrate my defenses her gentle request her kind ask it 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 puts me face to face with the ugliness of my own soul when i harden my heart towards her and god convicts me And he brings the power of his Holy Spirit to bear upon my heart. And he empowers me to change. Nothing makes me want to be a better husband or a more committed Christ follower than when my wife gently asks me to grow, to show my love for Jesus more faithfully. It's like the rock-hard soul that I have is suddenly like liquefied and all it takes is an ask. Consider another example from current events and I, I have to weave this in. This present racial tension in our culture and even in the church. I mean, you know, I, I think it's apparent we're mostly a white church in a fairly diverse city. And there are secular organizations making demands upon our culture. And there are even Christians making demands upon one another that particularly white people must do certain things. 
And if you just cut through that secular noise for just a moment, just humble yourself and pierce through that, what you can hear is our black brothers and sisters making a request. Would you listen? Would you consider my experience? Would you love what is good and abhor what is evil? That we consider what more we might have the power to do to love more sacrificially and to lay down our lives. That's a good thing. That's a beautiful request. And it should move our hearts to respond in godliness. We're simply being asked to look at our own hearts, to see with fresh eyes, to consider whether the gospel and the scriptures, the wisdom of God might need a renewed faithfulness from us in some particular areas. They're asking, and our response says a lot about the state of our hearts in relationship to God. Now, it's important that we understand that the real power of the request is not the request itself. This may be the most important part, and so stick with me here. We have to understand what's really going on. The request is predicated upon a kingdom reality. The request works for one simple reason. Asking works because and only because we are indeed citizens of the kingdom of God. Where the will of God is done. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we've already prayed that. Father, your will be done. In the kingdom of God, the will of God is done through the Spirit of God in the hearts of God's children. And friends, Jesus is promising us that when we love one another and we request the good things of the kingdom of God from one another, we will get what we ask for because righteousness and holiness and goodness and godliness are God's will for his people. This asking and this giving is only, be, is only possible because there is a supernatural power at work, the power of God. See, Jesus assumes that this is all happening within the kingdom of God. He's talking to people who have the Spirit of God. And we must remember that the kingdom of God is infused with the power of and the ability of God himself. The kingdom of God in which you live is infused with the power and the ability of God himself. And so you can respond to the ask in a way that honors Jesus. And this means that we're not only appealing to the will of the person that we're talking to when we ask a Christian for greater godliness. We are appealing to the will of God, to the Spirit of God residing within that person. And we can therefore expect that in a good heart, a resurrected heart, filled with the Spirit of God, both the heart and the Spirit of God residing in that person are going to desire to respond in a way that honors God. Both of these forces 
the new heart and the Spirit of God are going to work together to labor to grant the request to deny sin and walk in righteousness. And this is the biggest reason why asking should be enough. Because the Spirit of God teaches us to walk in righteousness. Because God and the people of God are committed to holiness and goodness and truth. And so God working in his people will ensure that the granting of the request happens when that request is for more holiness and goodness and truth. Let's look at the flip for a second. This is also why a Christian who refuses the request of a brother or sister in the body of Christ is such a dangerous thing. Why it's so shocking. If, if my wife were to say to me, don't harden your heart towards me in anger, and I were to say, I don't care, what am I saying about the power of God inside of me and the heart that he claims to have given me? Don't you see? When a request is denied by one who claims to be a Christian, it reveals that whatever they may claim about themselves in denying the call to greater holiness, the refusal of the request reveals a hardened heart. And it suggests they may not, in fact, be a part of the kingdom of God. Because you can only operate like this if your life is truly hidden with Christ. If you truly belong to his kingdom where you delight to do his will. The request assumes that we are asking fellow believers filled with the Spirit of God to live according to their resurrection nature that loves holiness and righteousness. I'm close to the end, but I, I need to wrap up a few little pieces here. This is why verse 12 comes after all of this. The golden rule, and I hate that my Bible, the ESV, chooses to put a heading in between verses 11 and 12, because I think they go together. It's another verse of Scripture that everybody seems to know. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I think this verse is so incredibly random right here. If you don't see the way that Jesus is connecting it to what he's been teaching about before. And, and we have a hint in the grammar with the word so. So is like a therefore. I saw some of you mouthing it. It's, it is the result of what has come prior. It indicates that what was spoken previously now has come to bear on what will be spoken next. And so we see that the golden rule is grounded in this kingdom reality of relationship that grows out of love for God and love for others. It's not a demand, actually. It's Jesus requesting that we consider the power of the ask in the body of Christ. Think about it. Don't you wish that when you ask somebody to change, that they would respond? And so shouldn't you do the same? I mean, we tend to boil this down just to that terrible, like, uh, playroom ethic that we give to our children. It goes like this. Do you want your brother to hit you? 
No. Well, then don't hit your brother. Do we seriously think that's what Jesus means here? Just don't do mean things to other people because you wouldn't like it if they did mean things to you. No, the real goal is influencing one another for good. And the idea here is that if we want other people to respond to our request that they would walk in righteousness, live the good life and follow Jesus, then we must also be the kind of people who when that request is given to us, we respond. We don't respond with the lame phrase that we looked at last week, don't judge me. That self-righteous and unaccountable claim. No, instead, we respond with a softened heart, a broken heart, a renewed commitment to live according to the kingdom of God. And so I just want to give you the heads up. If at any point you come to my house for some kind of pastoral counseling, or maybe we meet at Starbucks, who knows, I I want you to know that I, I don't typically make demands. And the reason I don't typically make demands is because I know how that goes in my own life. And if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't even have the power to meet the demands of righteousness. You can't do it. Instead, you're going to find me giving you a request that sounds a lot like this. In this struggle, in this moment, in this issue, will you do what Jesus asks you to do? I want to place that burden on you. In this area of sin in your life, in this conflict, in this issue, will you do what God's Word teaches you to do? My goal is always to appeal to the Spirit of God within you because I know that the Spirit of God in you will respond. It may take a while. You may be like me. You may have a fortress of hard-heartedness built around your soul, and we may have to penetrate that with some time and patience, but I know that the Spirit of God will not permit a child of God to go on in that kind of hard-heartedness. And Jesus is gentle and good, and he gives you the power to say, yes, I will do what my Lord has asked me to do. And he doesn't want to just change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. And I want to point out in conclusion, all of this is grounded in the cross. The reason why the request is so powerful among the people of God is because God responds to requests himself. When Jesus was slowly dying on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. Did God reject that request? Well, in an ultimate sense, you know, was this a prayer of salvation forgiveness? No, but think about this. If God had actually denied what Jesus was saying in that moment, then humanity would have ended in a fiery end in an instant. All of humanity would have just been toast if God had denied that request. And see, it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross, but Jesus has asked the Father not to hold that against you, which opened the door then for you to ask God, God, save me. God, help me. 
God, forgive me. It's because Jesus himself was not rejected in his request that we can be sure that God will respond to ours. So let's build the kingdom of God in our lives and in the lives of others by simply asking one another to do what is good, to walk in righteousness, to pursue Jesus. And let's be confident that our requests will be granted because God loves to give good gifts to his children. Let me pray. God, we have no right to demand anything from you. And so we simply request that your Holy Spirit would bring this kind of kingdom reality to bear upon our church. That we would be both people who graciously, patiently, lovingly request greater holiness from our brothers and sisters, while at the same time we are the kind of kingdom residents who respond to that request from others with a yes, with agreement. Lord, we thank you that you change hearts, and we recognize only you can do that. And so would you change our church to be more godly as we call one another to greater godliness. In Christ's name, amen.